Well, good morning, everybody. If I had a chance to meet you, my name is Paul McKenzie. I'm one of the pastors here, and it gets me my privilege to uh, consider God's word all together this morning. Um, also, like first service, uh, we were having a debate of whether things were going longer because we added in so much fun in the morning with baptisms and Carly's commission, um, or then also if the timer got off. But first service, uh, when we began to start, I had to cut uh, at least 12 minutes off of the allotted 35-minute uh, time frame. Good news is now it looks like seven. Uh, so I get some margin to go a little bit longer and then get you out on time to, I always made the, my, I grew up with a pastor, I always made the joke, um, we'll get you out in time to get you to Luby's. But now, and I want to say that, but now it's like not a thing anymore. Anyways. <laughs> Hey, again, if it's your first time here, we are so honored that you choose to uh, join us for worship. Uh, this is a great Sunday to jump in on to because you're not, uh, we're actually going to be starting out and doing an overcap and an introduction into Luke, our next uh, uh, book of the Bible that we're going to be studying all together. Um, but our typical fashion in teaching for Sunday mornings is that we try to take uh, an Old Testament book and move straight through it, um, verse by verse, passage by passage. And then when we finish that, then we'll take a New Testament uh, book and then move through it same way. And then when when we finish the New Testament, we'll go back to the Old Testament. Um, and so as uh, those who were here before Advent, before our Christmas season, um, we actually just finished up our long study in 1 Samuel. Um, and then our lead pastor, Chris, uh, took uh, all of Advent and really kind of used the narrative uh, of the birth of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. And that caught us all the way through the new year. And then we also did two weeks like our normal um, at the beginning of the year where he kind of gave a State of the Union address or just kind of the church health. Uh, so we spent the last two weeks doing that. And then looking forward to this week, he had asked that I would come up and maybe because we had just jumped into Advent and we didn't really talk about like an overview or what we're looking at uh, in Luke, he asked maybe if I could cover the entire book in kind of a 30,000 foot level um, that then as we move forward in the next uh, weeks and months that we will be able to look down through the microscope, uh, moving slowly through it, but then be able to put that into the context of the overall picture. And then as we were texting uh, leading up uh, to this week, we realized also that then when he started in Luke, he actually started with the narrative of the birth of Christ, which actually starts in verse 5 of chapter 1. And we didn't actually even cover uh, ver verses 1 through 4. And so then it was like, well, maybe we should at least cover the introduction because that would also be important to know in this overview. Um, so maybe you can cover verses 1 through 4. And the irony of that as well is in the ESV, as the uh, Bible translation we're going to be reading out of today, does a good job of including that the first four verses in the original Greek are actually just one sentence. It is just one long run-on sentence. Some other Bible translations for ease of reading it break it into multiple sentences, um, but in the Greek, it's just one long sentence. So the task for today went from cover the entire book to then just cover one sentence. I feel pretty good about that. Um, and actually, what we're going to do in between is a little bit of a hybrid. Um, we are going to cover some bigger things, some uh, overarching things that will be helpful for us for themes and for principles that will aid us to look forward as we move through the study of this book. And then we'll also look at this introduction, because within this introduction, we're going to ask ourselves some good uh, biblical hermeneutics questions, good studiers of the word. We're going to ask some basic questions in introductions uh, to be able to uh, write ourselves around what Luke is setting out to do so that we can keep it in mind as we move through the book. 
So that'll be the hybrid of two tasks. If you happen to have, if you happen to have, that was hard. If you happen to have a copy of God's Word, uh, go ahead and open it up, turn it on, navigate over. We're going to be in Luke, starting at the very beginning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, you can reach down into the rack in front of you and grab one of the pew Bibles. Um, we are going to be on page 855, um, or you can look up at the screen if there's not a pew Bible around. Out of reverency of God's word, I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to read Luke's long sentence as an introduction. Starting verse 1, insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Let's pray. Lord, may the reading and the hearing of your word this morning be praised to you. May you incline our hearts, not just to be hearers, but doers of your word. And may your Holy Spirit be the present provision for our holy living, for your glory, and thanks only by your grace. Amen. Y'all can be seated. To start in this covering of some of this background, I wanted to start with some unique uh, characteristics uh, of Luke. Um, one of the first ones is that uh, Luke is actually the longest of all four Gospels. Um, counting up even just the word count, the shortest is Mark at 11,000 words. Uh, John is next at 15,000 words. Matthew is a close second to Luke at 18,000 words, but Luke tops number one, gets the trophy with writing uh, 19 and a half thousand words in his Gospel alone. So he gets to take the prize. Luke, though, also is originally um, meant to communicate only half of Luke's intended story. Um, Luke is actually just the first half of the story. Luke also wrote the book, at, the book of Acts. And Acts actually picks up exactly where Luke leaves off. And so the entire story together, the first half is just the book of Luke, and then the second half is the book of Acts. And so interesting enough, when you um, read the introductory statement that Luke gives in Acts, it does a good job of summarizing what he accomplished in Luke and then sets up um, how he ended ready to move forward into the story of Acts. And so if you flipped over and looked, Acts chapter 1 actually says this, and a lot of it will sound familiar. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them for, during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is the way, again, Luke outlines this entire book um, leading up to this event of the resurrection and is appearing to the disciples. And then Acts immediately picks up on um, the second half and then carries the story on into the disciples. A pretty good summary of Luke's Gospels I really enjoy is a five-part summary um, that emphasizes the geographical um, movement that happens within Luke. There's a lot of ways to divide up Luke and to thematically consider it, but I like this one because it really kind of shows everything 
everything is moving towards this last event. Um, we have Jesus introduced and in his preparation of ministry. Then he has his ministry in the immediate area around Galilee. And then you see Jesus's um, ministry on the way to Jerusalem. It's all moving. And then you see Jesus's arrival in Jerusalem and his ministry there in 19 and 21. Also that it can finish with Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension in 22 through 24. Again, I like this idea of this movement. Everything in this, in this gospel is moving us towards Jerusalem. It's moving us towards his death and resurrection and his ascension. And again, there's many ways to break this down, but I like this one um, as a highlight because I think it is key that if we're reading through, if we're reading through Luke together uh, and we're not seeing in the individual moments that this is all pointing towards the end, it's all pointing towards Jesus dying on a cross. It's all pointing to him raising again on the third day. If we miss the resurrection as we move through Luke, then we miss one of the main aims and purposes Luke is trying to communicate. And so we want to start. We want to start with the end in mind. And so again, sorry, I should have warned, I guess, spoiler alert, I was going to tell you how it ended, um, but it's been 2,000 years if you haven't seen the movie. I don't feel so bad. But also, interesting enough, it's not that Luke is the longest gospel, um, but Luke is actually the uh, longest book in the entire New Testament. Um, and so when you take Luke, um, you see that he writes the most in the New Testament. Second is actually Matthew again. Third, though, is Acts. And so interesting enough, a little Bible trivia, um, you put Luke and Acts together, uh, Luke then represents about 27% of all the words written in the New Testament. Fun fact, that is actually more than the entire work of the Apostle Paul, and although he wrote more books and letters, the amount actually there, Luke takes up the most real estate in our New Testament with his presented histories and testimonies. Some other themes of Luke um, that I want to highlight so that we can be looking out for them. Luke focuses in um, on the humanity of Christ uh, much more than any of the other gospel writers. He focuses on the humanity of Christ. Uh, and one of the ways um, that he does that is, he's, and again, he's not making, he's not emphasizing the humanity and disregarding the divinity. He's emphasizing the humanity so that the divinity is all the more um, uh, brought to light and highlighted. Luke loves to repeat this phrase, the son of man, this title, um, pointing out to, again, his humanity. This, again, will be a title that will be very relatable to the Greek audience as much of their writing of this time focused in on the idea of an ideal man, the perfect man in society, one that with his outward blemish, an ideal man. And so this title, essentially Luke will use over and over, pointing to Jesus as this ideal man who's finally come uh, as the plan all along, that he was the plan to save Israel and he was the plan to save the whole world. Um, and it was God coming down as man that accomplished this. The second highlight um, that Luke does is he highlights Jesus's feelings probably much more than any other uh, gospel writers. I think this piggybacks a little bit on his presentation of Jesus's humanity um, is that he points to as a human, he felt things. Um, looking through probably some of the uh, other gospel writers, what they highlight, Matthew highlights very much what Jesus said. Mark highlights what Jesus did, but Luke highlights here what Jesus felt. And then lastly, John just simply highlights who Jesus is. But Luke is concerned with Jesus' feelings. And so when we read through Luke, we'll see this compassionate, uh, motivated, emotional Savior. Uh, and, and again, this, this Savior has come as another theme for a very specific people group. Another theme of Luke is that we will see the highlighting of the lowly or of the outcast. 
This is another, again, Greek-style writing where uh, Luke is going to be relatable to his audience, uh, the Gentiles, because uh, this is also this idea of a social justice, of an ethic that's put out to make a perfect uh, ethical system that then socially everybody can participate in. Luke will reveal that in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, God will do this exactly opposite of the way the world would want to do it. Uh, The world says, this is my economy of perfection, and God will turn that on its head and say, no, I'm going to do it the exact opposite way. And then he's going to present this coming Jesus, the Savior, this Messiah, um, for some very specific people groups here. Um, We're going to be running into stories and parables and healings about um, that are focusing in on or elevating or healing the sick, the blind, the poor. We're going to be talking about widows. We're going to be talking about the lowly. We're going to be talking about Jesus hanging out with outcasts and other socially neglected people. And we're going to do so all running into the idea of Jesus coming for their salvation. Actually, Jesus, uh, or this word for Jesus' salvation, the noun of salvation, Luke uses four times more often than any other gospel writer, Um, which is, again, he was trying to make this clear. He's trying to present that there's a gospel message, that salvation is not for the clean and polished, um, but is for the needy and for the desperate. And Luke will uh, tell us that uh, even in Jesus' own words in Luke 5, 31, um, those, Jesus answers to the crowd, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So I think be on a lookout for this compassionate savior, this God man coming to give freedom to the poor and thus all of mankind to be a savior of their sins. So with those kind of overviews and those seems to be looking out forward to, um, let's uh, jump back into the uh, introduction in the first four verses. Uh, and I started wanting to ask just kind of even the question of like, why are introductions important? Um, I personally find myself as either my disposition uh, or my personality. Uh, I tend to want to skip through introductions uh, for that matter, probably even salutations or valedictions, especially when we run across them in scripture where they're just a bunch of names you don't know how to pronounce and a bunch of places. You don't know where they are. Uh, I just kind of want to skip through them in order to get to the meat or to something that at least I think I can understand better. Um, but again, that's, uh, that's my fault in this. Uh, my fault was also shown not just in reading the Bible, but um, also because I married uh, an early childhood educator. Um, and so when she reads to our children, you know, she pulls up the book and shows them the cover and reads the title. And then she turns to the first page and rereads the title. And the author turns to the next page and then reads the illustrator's name and then his accomplishments. And then turns the next page and then whatever there is, who's it dedicated to. And when I do it, I'm like, here's the book title, go to chapter one. And that wasn't a problem with my oldest um, because she's more like-minded like me and she never minded. But then my second came along and she got old enough that then, uh, then when I would skip those parts, she would then inform me, why aren't you reading it like mommy? And I would say, because mommy's better. But introductions are very important, and especially in Luke's gospel, because uh, they will tell us uh, the the aim of the book. And so I want to highlight four um, principles that we want to always ask ourselves when we're running into an introduction or into the book of a book of scripture. Uh, And I want to highlight a couple things that Luke does in these four verses. The first thing that I think Luke accomplishes in this introduction is he certainly sets the gravity of the task. He sets out that there's a task out in front of him, and it's very, very important. A task set out for him that he is basically going to carefully investigate all things that have been fulfilled and accomplished among them. This is his task. He does this in an orderly way, as we read. 
that he might in turn produce an orderly account. And this is not haphazard. This is not unorganized. We'll very much see this is Luke's personality um, and certainly his training uh, as a Greek doctor. We'll come to that here later. He wants to make sure that it's so orderly that people could read it and consider it, it says, and then upon considering it that they may know with certainty the things that has been taught to them essentially concerning salvation that Jesus the Messiah is the coming salvation for them. This gravity of the task uh, is essentially to provide something that a soul can read, a soul can hear, and the soul can be saved, can find salvation in Christ. And what more important of a task of persuasion or presentation of the gospel than souls on the, on the line, souls being saved? Jonathan Edwards, um, in his preaching, uh, uh, put a quote in one of his, one of his sermons uh, that I thought was worthwhile, so I put it on the screen. Since salvation is solely the work of God and ministers, so this applies to us because here every member is a minister. Since salvation is solely the work of God and ministers have the privilege to be used as a means for the accomplishment of this task, it is essential that ministers strive to proclaim the pure gospel, speaking the truth in love. Doing so might be costly, but there is no higher calling, no more serious task. The gospel ministry truly does deal with life and death issues. So there's clear, there is a gravity to this task he set out before him to present the gospel, a life and death issue. Another helpful thing uh, to be able to consider uh, is the context of the writing. And there's lots of different ways that we could focus in on the context. I specifically wanted to focus in on the audience and the author. Or as it says on uh, the screen, who is writing this book and who is receiving this book? And I would start with who is the author, because Luke never specifically names himself as the author of his gospel. Um, but there is good reason to assume Luke is the author. One, from extra biblical accounts, um, even with conservative dating, um, probably about within 75 years of Luke finishing this book, um, we have early church uh, fathers and writers uh, acknowledging that Luke was the writer of this book. And so there's not a lot of time that passes in that, and there's probably a lot um, that we would be able to find very reliable in the passing on of that oral tradition. But it's not just that Luke is mentioned only extra-biblically. Luke is also mentioned within the Bible. In fact, Paul mentions him three times. And from Paul's references across some of his writings where he mentions Luke, we glean a couple things about this author. This is again where we know that he is a physician. This would explain his orderly writing. This would explain his very polished uh, Greek language um, that is implored here, his style um, that fits. It, is also, uh, it also explains why uh, through this book we run into words uh, that no other gospel writer uses because a lot of these are high medical terminology or the way that Luke can describe the natural elements uh, is very, very different and again probably comes from his medicinal training, trained as a doctor. We also know that he served as a doctor accompanying Paul on some of his missionary journeys. This would explain why we see such an overlap um, when Luke starts using the term we in uh, the book of Acts. This is also why um, he probably has such specific insight into these events that he wasn't even at because he was traveling around with Paul and being a good researcher. He was asking firsthand of the source and writing these things down. And then to Luke's credit, two additional things we know about him uh, is that we know that he was faithful to the end of Paul's ministry, even when Demas wasn't uh, and abandoned uh, for worldly causes. Luke remained faithful. And because of that, um, Paul calls Luke a beloved. He calls him his beloved physician. Um, 
So with these evidences, uh, it isn't much contested. Most everybody agrees that Luke wrote this book, even though he doesn't name himself. The only people who really disagree with that really just disagree with any authorship being reliable in the New Testament. So if we can be settled on the author, the next question was asking, uh, what is the audience or who is the recipient, recipient of this? Well, that is even more clearly identified, at least in this clear statement that we read, because it identifies in those first couple of verses that Luke was writing this introduction um, for Theophilus, a certain person, Theophilus, and it was relatively simple. And while that's pretty much agreed upon, um, that the author certainly, I mean, again, because the text said it is written to this Theophilus, well, there has been some um, modern discussion, uh, really that kind of emerged in the late 80s, early 90s, um, in academic circles that started to uh, really kind of question the nature of who is this Theophilus? Um, what does he kind of represent? Um, and really, the way that they, uh, the argument as it goes, is kind of a twofold one. First, they want to question, um, as I just presented Luke as this Gentile doctor who is now converted to Christianity, who is now writing um, this book. Uh, because, and he's writing this book to Gentiles. We have, uh, we would say like this in the summary of the Gospels, Matthew. We have Matthew as a Jew writing specifically to Jews, to the Jewish audience. We have Mark, who's also a Jew, but his target audience is the Romans. And most historically, Luke is this Gentile who is writing to these Gentiles. And again, we've, we've already talked about why um, this would explain a lot of things. This would explain his high form of Greek. This would explain his focus on the perfect son of man. Um, this, is, this is his concern for social justice and the nature of society. Um, because again, I think Luke is um, this Gentile who's converted to Christianity uh, and then now is traveling around with Paul, learning all his Jewish histories and writing a defense to a specific Jew, uh, Gentile person and thus then a Gentile audience mainly, number one. Now, again, the, the argument goes, though, that maybe um, the reason why, because it isn't just that Luke is a Gentile book alone, um, Luke wonderfully weaves in this masterfully tie-in of this history of the Jewish faith. He seems very knowledgeable in the history of God's people, and he weaves this into this style, even, even adapts his style in several times that looks very Jewish in the time. He uses things like chasms, or he uses this idea of these literary devices um, that are very well known for uh, mnemonic uh, oral traditions of so the way people learned and talked and read this. These are all present there. And so a lot of people look at all those Jewish ideas and say, well, then we actually are convinced or think that then it's not that Luke became first uh, from a Gentile to a convert to Christianity, but essentially that Luke was um, a proselyte, essentially that he converted to Judaism first. Because Judaism was never a closed off um, people group as a people of God. There's a ways that others could join into the family of God. And so they would say that Luke then became a convert to Judaism first, thus was circumcised, uh, was taking on um, a, a, a Jewish dietary system, um, was uh, walking in rabbinical teachings under a, rabbi, a rabbi, uh, and that's where he learns all this knowledge. Now, I'm fine with this part of the argument because honestly, it could go either way. I'm good if Luke was a Gentile that then uses his Gentile form then to uh, be able to communicate well to Gentiles and Jews because he is either a Gentile who converted to Christianity who's learned about Judaism 
makes sense for a doctor to be that well knowledge, or a Gentile who converted to Judaism and then now um, is able to write as a convert to Christianity. I'm good on that front. Um, and again, we could get to heaven and it'll be a fun thing to just find out. But that conversation does get carried out a little bit further, um, really in the late 90s, um, where then it was proposed that then it was not only that uh, uh, that Luke was a Jew, but that Luke was a Jew not writing to Gentiles, but Luke was a Jew writing to Jews. And the way that this argument, I feel like, has a little bit weaker in it um, is because, again, this, this Theophilus uh, is a specific person. The way that they want to make the argument is Theophilus is they want to look at the meaning of Theophilus um, because Theophilus is just the combination of two words, Theo and Philos, and which essentially just means God and brotherly love. And so it's, that's why a lot of your translations or footnotes under Theophilus will say uh, something like lover of God or friend of God uh, or brother of God. And then so again, um, I, th I think I can be sympathetic to uh, those that want to take this person and make a lover of God a bigger term to, ex to communicate. So this applies to anybody who loves God, um, but I can't make it where this person is not a real person and probably isn't identified as a, uh, as a specific Gentile. Um, and why I say that is because I don't think it's just the broadest term. I think this is one individual um, that is listed and it comes from the fact that Luke gives him a title. Giving him a title um, is a very common thing in, again, Greek writing of this time, um, that when you would write a treatise um, or an apology, that you would write it to a high government official naming a specific title to, to make sure to identify that this is who you're writing it to. Oftentimes, that was because they paid you to write it, but then oftentimes, it was the way that you were able to get attention if you wrote it to them, and then all the people who followed them would read it. Uh, uh, in the same accord. Because this title that comes in here is this most excellent, this most excellent Theophilus. Luke actually implores the same title three other times in Acts. Twice, again, never to generalize people. These titles aren't given just to generalize people. They're always given to specific people. Um, twice to the governor of Judea, Felix, and once to Festus, which was Felix's successor as governor of Judea. So again, I think, I, I think it's wise, and again, we can, I can be fine if we want to say that, uh, uh, that Luke was uh, an apostate, a convert to Judaism, or that he was uh, a later convert to Christianity. I think at a core, he's writing from a Gentile background to a specific Gentile audience, and he's doing so that does not neglect the beauty of God's inspired word, where you see a lot of Greek prose in here and a lot of things that are bent in that Gentile style that doesn't negate that this is a wonderful book, even to the Jews and even in a Jewish culture. And so I think it, it manages both of those. And so what gives most credence to this certainty? Because as we looked at this, um, one of the things that Luke was stated is that he was wanting to make sure Theophilus was certain. I think to do that, we want to look and consider the sources of the writing. Another principle um, when you're working through introductions that you want to consider is what are the sources of his writing? Luke tells us directly he has three sources, and we'll throw them up on the screen from the first two verses. Um, they're the underlined lines. The first one um, is that apparently one of his sources is uh, those that have compiled a narrative before him. I won't go so much into um, critical uh, theory or critical uh, literature theory um, that's trying to um, essentially find where all the sources are from, but it is likely that Luke has a copy of Mark and at least some copies, original manuscripts that then both Matthew and Mark come to. So he at least is, again, he's doing his diligence. 
He wants us to be certain, and so he is a doctor, knows how to research, he knows how to find, get back as close as he can to the truth and the original source, and he utilizes others' writings in this. But he doesn't just utilize them, he also utilizes these eyewitnesses and these ministers of the word. It is interesting that this uh, eyewitness, this is again very prominent, both in uh, the accounts of searching for truth for the Jewish culture and the Gentile culture, the Greek culture. Um, eyewitnesses were very important. If you came together and, and it was saying, hey, you said this and you said this, the best way of defense was then having an eyewitness who could actually say, this is what was said. And so these were highly prized. In fact, the role of the eyewitness is almost, um, from Peter's view, almost becomes like compulsory. And like in Peter, the way he presents it is like, because I've seen, I can't help but tell. Um, this is uh, evident in Acts 4.20 when he says, uh, is speaking about uh, John and him standing before the Sanhedrin and being judged for teaching these things out loud. And he says this in verse 24, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Similarly, in his own book, in 2 Peter 1.16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So this consistency of the eyewitnesses is a major logical reliability to Luke's presentation of the Christian faith. And thirdly, he cites this uh, ministers of the word, um, which is a really cool uh, word. Uh, some of your translations may not have ministers. It may have servant or subservient or underling. Um, uh, literally, this word means to under row. It's a nautical term for the lower deck of rowers, essentially the ones um, that, that uh, literally are down on the bottom rowing, figuratively are under the subservience of the captain and the orders above. Their only job is to carry out the orders. And so these were men who put themselves under in submission under the authority of the word. And so again, uh, why is it important for Luke to bolster all this source material? Um, because again, he has a name. And that aim is to communicate a purpose. And so the next thing I want to consider for a moment is the purpose of the writing. Luke's careful investigation uh, is, allows him to provide this orderly account, which he describes not only as careful, but also comprehensive Look back at verse three, it says, I have followed all things closely. He's saying this is comprehensive to give it to Theophilus. And what is it to accomplish? That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke is clearly stating that the purpose of his work is to provide certainty or reliability to justify belief in Jesus as a savior for our salvation. Again, harken back to the gravity of the work. And that's what makes sense. Um, and it is, it is interesting uh, that because as uh, Luke presents this, there's, there's lots of um, debate about how to actually then in this context, what to consider it as. Is this gospel um, a biography? A lot of times that's what we get, um, have been told that all the gospels are essentially biographies of Jesus. Um, uh, but again, it, it doesn't really serve well in the sense of a true biography because really as we know biographies today, there's a whole lot of time spent in the beginning and very little time spent in the end because he dies. And as one commentator put, well, it rules out biography because it's not the last page was, and then on so-and-so date, he died, book over. Well, Jesus didn't, so 
some other thing has to happen afterwards, uh, which again is a little bit humorous, but makes sense. Because if you read any of the gospel writers, actually the smallest amount of attention that they focus is on the birth, the beginning. In fact, Luke only spends a couple chapters in the beginning focusing in on the birth or the boyhood of Jesus. The vast majority, the rest of the book um, in 20 chapters is all concerned with the last three-ish years of his life and ministry. And so it's like they skip all this part in the middle. And so it's not rightly known as probably a biography, although it's biographical. It's kind of in the same way that it's like it presents a history, but it's not truly just a history, um, even though it's very historical. Um, but I would say and suppose instead what this is, um, this, this book, probably rightly titled, um, is a theological defense or an apology. It is a defense of the rational pursuit of why salvation should be accepted and that the person should be, that it's received from is Jesus. And this is largely because we would say Luke uh, is here writing as an evangelist. He's essentially writing to uh, communicate the gospel. And that's what church history has dubbed him as in the title, Luke the Evangelist. And so he wants everybody to know that Jesus of Nazareth was the one who came to fulfill the law of God in its entirety. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, in his book, Devoted to God, um, I thought put this very keenly. The lawmaker becomes the law keeper, but then took our place in condemnation as though he were the law breaker. Luke is, is writing this so that we can come to know that truth, that we were supposed to do it, but we couldn't do it. That he bore the judgment of God, and by bearing the punishment we deserve, he can offer forgiveness that we don't deserve. Luke is writing this so that all his readers will come to an assured and certain faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah and Lord, and that's his purpose. And that's one, again, that should be understood and celebrated in today's times, because a lot of people, again, as we know, as we interact, um, a lot of people look to just any form of a religion, let alone Christianity, as the blind leading the blind, jumping out with no basis. And as Chris leads us and teaches us so well, that's just not the case that what Scripture presents. Scripture presents a reliable and an accurate justification for a reasonable faith. And it does so unashamedly, and it does so asking you to question, and it does so putting yourselves in and underneath that teaching and truth in a way that we can feel comfortable in. So where do we go from here? How do we wrap this all up? Well, I'm going to borrow again from the end because I already spoiled it, uh, how, it how the book all ends. But uh, Luke provides this unique story that no other gospel writer does um, of a couple disciples after Jesus' death uh, and his missing body um, are walking down the road to Emmaus and uh, Jesus appears uh, to them even though they don't recognize him at first. He begins to walk alongside of them and, they, and he asks them what's wrong and they tell this dismayal of how they thought that uh, this Messiah had come in this Jesus but now they're confused and they don't understand. Uh, and then Jesus embarks with them uh, on apparently the greatest Sunday school lesson of all eternity because it's Jesus himself explaining how all of scripture was put together to point to him and how he fulfilled it all. And then they get to the house and then he breaks bread and at the moment of breaking bread, their eyes are opened and then they realize Jesus and then he vanishes. And then their words are super interesting. Luke 24, 31, it's recorded, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? 
So two very simple points, I think, of application for myself and my prayer for all of us as we continue through this study of Luke. The first is simply, are your eyes open to Jesus? I'd say that first and foremost as, have you put your faith in Christ for salvation? Um, Have you considered all that the claims that he has made and rightly understood him as the only option of salvation for your sins? And have you put your faith in him? And if you haven't yet, because you're uncertain, because you're like, I don't know if it's reliable yet, then we are so glad that you are here, because that's Luke's aim. Spend time with him, because his goal is to make it certain. Dive into it. But I would also say, if, you, if you're thinking about your relationship now before an ever-righteous God, and you have doubt or uncertainty that you would be in right standing, then don't wait any longer. May today be the day of salvation. Ask whoever, you, whoever brought you here or come forward during the time of invitation. We'd love to share with you that good news. But not just our our eyes open to Jesus, I think the second application point that we want to be praying while we read through Luke is, is our heart ablaze with his teachings? When these disciples heard Jesus teach, their hearts burned. My prayer uh, for us is to do the diligence, asking the Holy Spirit, Lord, have I silenced this word in my life? Have I made it to where I'm just numb or not responsive? Or do I sit under your teaching? as a minister, a subservient of the word with my heart ablaze. And again, I comfort you, dear friend, that if you find yourself in that cold or callous state, then continue in the study of Luke because this is the end that he's aiming it at. And we pray that the Holy Spirit illuminates that for you too. And as Spencer continues to play for us during this time of invitation, I also want to say, uh, if it's just as some housekeeping, if you've met with Lance and the Welcome Home team and you're wanting to come forward to make your membership known, uh, now would be the opportunity to do that as well. But I'm going to invite you all to stand. Really, you can take whatever posture you need. If you need to go to the right side of the room to pray with somebody, if you need to come forward and pray, whatever it is you need to do and however you need to respond, now is the time to do so.